the Total Soccer Show Weekend Review. Chelsea were looking good for the win after Mudrick's shot come cross, but Arsenal came back to show Bowley's boys who's boss. In the end, the points were split, and on the whole, both teams might have done better without liabilities in goal. Elsewhere, the Merseyside derby was a slight bore, with Everton trying their best to play for the draw and refereeing decisions, leaving us all a little sore. And Man City remained top of the pops with Erling Haaland scoring from outside the box. Juve face Milan and you have to beg me to watch another game coached by Allegri. And Barcelona had another team star step up when asked while Ajax are sinking pretty fast. And in MLS, we had the result we all wanted to see. Charlotte FC in the playoffs <laughs> after beating Messi. That's right. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, a man who's glad to see club soccer return. Just as glad as I am, Taylor Rockwell, aren't you, sir? Of course. Uh, I did enjoy your international break. I did enjoy at least one of the USA's games, but it was nice to have uh, our weekend back and have uh, an immediate return to officiating and VAR drama. Taylor hates the international break as well. Tick. Okay, got that on my list. Good news, Taylor. Only 20 days until the next international break. 20 days. I'm excited. I know you are as well. Ryan is rubbing his hands together with glee as we speak. Glee. Yes, that is the sensation I am feeling at this point. Graham Rosvin, are you feeling gleeful? Hello. Hello, I am Ryan Bailey. Are you feeling gleeful after Charlotte FC making the, the playoffs? Did you have a good time ogling Messi on Saturday night? I, I enjoyed your Patreon video, <laughs> by the way. Good variety on the TSS Patreon at the moment. So we've had Ryan watching Messi, my wee uh, Sterling Albion vlog, Taylor and his pet tiger, and my personal highlight, <laughs> Joe's MLS pumpkin, which has to mm. be seen to be believed. It's quite the yeah. feat. Um Patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show to check out that bonus content if you'd like to support us in that manner. Excuse me, Joseph Lowry, uh, talk us through the pumpkin a little bit. We don't want to give up too much of the information here, but um, symmetry wasn't its strong point, (laughs) I would say. (laughs) I mean, first of all, fair. Second of all, it is hard to carve Don Garber's face onto a pumpkin. I think if you haven't tried it, 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 you're, you're not really aware of how difficult it is. No, we had some folks over, just some, some folks over to the house the other day, and we were carving pumpkins, and I could not think of what to do, and I talk about this a bit in the video. I'm not giving away the visual, as if there's much to be given away. Oh, Joe. But I, w- I was trying to think of what, so Taylor hasn't seen it, and he's just oh, no. now looking at it. So I have no artistic ability whatsoever, and was had to be, I, I was, I, I had to be retaught how to use scissors multiple times growing up. Um, no scissors in this pumpkin carving, but, um, you know, I think some of that energy is still around. It is, it's, it's identifiable. Though, Taylor, is it not identifiable? You can tell what it is, and I take that as a win. I, you had to be retaught how to use scissors? Let's get like, into that. Was the whole thing. Thing. Is it like riding a bike? Like I'm not great at riding forget? a bike either, if I'm being honest with you, Ryan. <laughs> okay. Are you left-handed, Joe? No, I'm right-handed. Um, I don't have okay. any excuses here. I'm well, he still did a magnificent job with the pumpkin. And your, your pumpkin made me consider how an MLS Halloween would look. So discovery rights for houses with the best trick-or-treat candy. Right. Uh, people dressing up as as that fan who had the... What was it? What was the story, uh, Joe? Like a Toyota Stadium sign fell on yeah, his he shoulder? With, uh, mm. He was hit with the giant O from one of the, one of the O's and <laughs> yeah. one of the Toyota Stadium signs that was the size of a car door. He is now okay. So I presume that's what you're dressing up as for Halloween this year. The giant O. <laughs> yes, that's my plan. I think everybody else has to dress up as one of Jose Martinez, Diego Chara, or Jose Alonso. I think that's just kind of how this has to go. So you guys can pick between those three and I'll be the giant O. Wonderful. Pumpkins <laughs> smashing. Patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show. Check us out there. Please do, listener, if you are that way inclined. Plenty to talk about from this weekend. We've got Premier League stuff. We've got 
Serie A stuff, Bundesliga stuff, MLS playoff stuff. Oh, it's all coming up on this show. Uh, we did have uh, a moment of sadness on Saturday, uh, hours before Manchester United were due to play their game against Sheffield United. So Bobby Cholton, it was announced to pass away at the age of 86. He turned 86 just two weeks ago. One of the greatest soccer players of all time, a World Cup winner in 1966. He got the Ballon d'Or that year as well. He won three leagues and a European Cup for Man United. He was a survivor of the Munich air disaster that killed eight of his teams teammates and 23 people in total in 1958 he was 20 years old then uh, he scored two goals in the game that day uh, it was against Red Star Belgrade incidentally uh, he was England's record goal scorer before Wayne Rooney claimed the title in 2015 and Graham uh, those of us who've watched the Beckham documentary all of us on this here podcast because we spoke about it on this here podcast will know that um, his legacy was very much intact at Manchester United right up until recently uh, David Beckham's middle name is Robert because of Sir Bobby and he's mentioned many times in that doc. Yeah, he was a, a complete icon, Sir Bobby Charlton. For me, the first um, English soccer superstar. I know Jeff Hurst scores the hat-trick in 1966 mm. and you have Bobby Moore as the captain as well, but Charlton was the driving force of that team and he was also the star alongside uh, George Best and, and, and Dennis Law for one of the best club teams of all time and won European Cup in 68, 10 years after the Munich air disaster, which for me is one of the, the great all-time human stories in, in, in football history. And this was around the time when matches were starting to be shown on TV and footballers are becoming celebrities. Um, Charlton wasn't always the most natural of celebrities. He was very humble, which pe people loved him for. Quite softly spoken, very, very polite, of course. But he was a, a figurehead for English soccer at a time it really became the mainstream obsession it is today and if you want an illustration of how widely he adored he was across English soccer and um, watching the Aston Villa West Ham match on, on Sunday they had the, the minute silence for him and after the minute silence that the crowd at Villa Park starts it breaks out in a chant of you know there's only one Bobby Charlton and th that's two clubs that he never played for two rival teams of Manchester United so he really was an icon for uh, English soccer as a whole. He was indeed. Taylor, uh, there are stories about the mm -hmm. 1966 World Cup win. I think uh, Sir Bobby told them occasionally how after the game, uh, uh, they just went for a pint in a pub, mm. uh, an, a pub in East London, where you can imagine if that happened today, they might be mobbed slightly, but they just quietly all went for a drink. And yeah, as, as I say, under, an understated gentleman, Sir Bobby Charlton. Indeed. Yeah, I, I think I've re heard him referred to as like one of the shyest uh biggest names in the world uh and yeah i have to believe if you had players going for a drink in the pub afterwards they would be mobbed and then also antonio conte would appear to criticize them for their dietary habits well, jack that grealish did it after the championship <laughs> final earlier this year see how that turned out <laughs> yeah we'll see i mean and you never know who's going to show up now and scream at him pep also seems like he has uh thoughts on diet so it definitely a different time but also an era in which that sort of like camaraderie i think wasn't necessarily easier, but what was definitely a priority, and I feel like that's something that Beckham talked about and has talked about uh, from Manchester United, about how it felt like one big family, and I think Bobby Charlton's time there is a big part of how that legacy sort of endured and carried over. Obviously, Charlton's a player that I didn't really watch, uh, or didn't watch at all. I wasn't born when he was he was playing for Manchester United in England, but watching some of the clips, the shot that he had on him was quite incredible. And when you consider mm. how heavy Rocket. the footballs are and how heavy the pitches are at that time, yeah, quite the quite the technique behind that 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 shot to score as many goals as he did. Forty nine goals, I believe, for England. He was a, he was a central midfielder, so that that's quite the achievement. And as I say, mm. one of the true English soccer icons.
Indeed. Uh, and it was a, an emotional weekend as a result, because you talked about uh, Bobby Charlton being an icon, being wildly adored. And I would say that extends to uh, my our late friend, I should say, uh, Daryl Grove, who passed away three years ago uh, on the 22nd uh, is when he, he passed and it was announced the following day. Uh, he was a, a lovely man, a wonderful human. And I think a lot of the things that we've said, a lot of the superlatives we've given to Bobby Charlton apply to Daryl. One thing I wanted to note, we... Um, we coached a team here in Richmond, uh, the Healing Place team. Uh, it was like an amateur CVSA team. Uh, but he was always the kind of organizer, and he was always the uh, energy, I would say, coach in terms of keeping things positive, making sure everybody felt supported. Uh, and so we had a game this weekend. Uh, the team is kind of reconstituted. And uh, uh, Thad Williamson, who knew Daryl, uh, he plays on the team, he, he mentioned that it was uh, the date of Daryl's passing, and we had a kind of a moment to uh, – celebrate him and honor him and then dedicated that game to him before kickoff and just tried to like really focus on his ideals of picking each other up and being supportive and just enjoying ourselves because ultimately playing soccer should be an enjoyable thing. Uh, I think that would have made him happy. We won 4-0 and I think the goals would have made him happy, but a clean sheet, uh, Daryl Ever, the defender, would have made him probably the happiest. Um, But I did also just want to add that like, uh, that day was probably one of the darkest, scariest, like saddest of my life. Uh, and then I like so I want to thank everyone who's continued to listen and sort of supported the show, supported me through that time period. And then to thank the three guys who are who are still here. And all three of you made that show, made the show continue to carry on because Daryl passed. We had a daughter. I was on paternity. It was a pretty like uncertain time period. And you all sort of helped carry the load or carry the load directly and and I and I'm really proud of of what the show has become and how it's evolved and kind of the friendships that we've we formed along the way. And I know that's a thing that, that Daryl also would have cared about and loved. And I enjoyed texting with his wife a little bit this weekend and getting to tell her that we had covered the the Beckham documentary in detail. And her response was like, "That reminds me of when you and Daryl covered that terrible, terrible English drama, The English Game." About- <laughs> <laughs> and and it really did. And so I just feel like there's still that. That like connective tissue and, and the vibe, I hope, is, is still the same. So I wanted to say we, we miss Daryl a lot, uh, but I'm, I'm thankful for the many friends and listeners who've supported us and, and helped keep us going. Yes, indeed. They're, uh, very nice words, Taylor. I, mischaracterization of the English game, I would suggest there, but uh, I remember it being quite <laughs> wonderful. But uh, yeah, three, three years. Wow, that's incredible. Uh, Daryl, we do mm. miss you, and uh, we appreciate all the support. Thank you very much, guys, indeed. Shall we go to the Premier League? Chelsea 2, Arsenal 2, a late fight back for Arsenal in this one. They were 2-0 down until the 77th minute. Uh, Chelsea in control, arguably up until that point. Uh, uh, Joe, what did we make of this one? I wasn't expecting Chelsea to look as impressive as they were from the outset. I think that's kind of my main takeaway as well, to be honest with you, Ryan. I, I still don't really know what to make of this Chelsea team. The underlying numbers have been good to start the season. The results have, have not been so good to start the season. On talent, I mean, basically everything you could want is here in some form or another in their squad. But Arsenal is still pretty clearly the better team in my mind. And they're certainly the more stable of these two teams. So to see Chelsea, yes, they're playing at home. To see Chelsea come out and start this game as strongly as they did. Yeah, I guess a little fortunate with the opening penalty that Cole Palmer slots away. A little fortunate for both teams on some goals in this game that I'll let somebody else get to later. But I I, overall, even though the collapse happens in the second half... I still came away relatively impressed with what Chelsea brought in and relatively impressed to zoom in on one player with what Cole Palmer brought. 
brought over from Manchester City in the summer transfer window for a lot of money. Someone who's clearly expected to play a role in this squad has not been an every game starter, but normally with Man City, and we've seen him here with, with Chelsea as well, plays a little bit wider, plays in the half space or can drift even wider than that. Pochettino goes to him as a number nine in this game. I thought he did pretty well for himself. He didn't look like the most natural players in that spot, but just 21 years old, not somebody that it still has a dedicated home in one spot, apparently, for this Chelsea team. I was impressed with what he brought to the table, some of the off-ball movement, how he coordinated some of the pressing from the front. With Chelsea, they started out in this 4-4-2 defensive shape that was designed to screen Jorginho and, and Zinchenko when he would pinch in, or Declan Rice when he would drop in to form that double pivot. Chelsea, in general, were solid on the defensive end and had some bright moments in the attack. And for me, a lot of that came back around to Cole Palmer. Yeah, he's 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 a system player, right? He's a player who makes this approach by Pochettino work to a certain extent. He's mobile. He's got good technical ability. He's got good awareness of space. You can tell that he was coached at Manchester City, and I think for the time being, he has cemented a place in that that Chelsea attack. Even when Christian Cuckoo comes back, um, who you would have suggested would play in, on the right side of the attack or as the number nine as Palmer did in this game. Um, I think Palmer has done enough in the last few matches to, to keep that position for a while. And that is another hallmark of Pochettino as a manager is he he likes to have two or three project players, three youngster, two or three youngsters that he works with. I think Palmer is one of them. Levi Colwell is another one in this Chelsea team. So I am starting to see the Pochettino um, hallmarks. I do think there has been an improvement from Chelsea, and and we we talked about it in our little Patreon uh, preview of the weekend that that we did ahead of this game. Uh, Joe, I think you might have been drugged up on your cough syrup at at, at that point, um, so <laughs> maybe missed out on, on on that chat a little bit. You were there, you were there in body, but maybe not in, in, right. in spirit. Not quite in spirit. Joe, yeah. you seem to be you seem to be better uh, today, so that that's good news. <laughs> but um, I do think there has been a bit of an improvement from Chelsea in the last few games. I think some of that is just likely down to players being a little bit more settled. Injuries are clearing up a bit and Pochettino has been able to name a consistent team for the first time. But looking at this game, I thought Fernandos and Caicedo worked pretty well as a midfield pairing with, with Gallagher in a slightly more advanced role where he can attack with a bit more freedom, which is where he's always been most more, uh, more, most comfortable rather than in a deeper position. I thought having Palmer rotating into space where he was dragging Gabriel out of position to then create pockets of space for Sterling. I like that combination. Even Mark Cucurella played well at left-back against Bakayo Saka, <laughs> who Saka didn't have a pass or a dribble into the box the entire match, which is quite remarkable up against Mark Cucurella. And then on the other side, you have Malo Gusto, who's willing to get forward and provide an option as well. So I'm not, I'm not sure how feasible it is for Chelsea to play an entire season without a, an actual number nine, but the foundations are starting to be put into place. Man, Graham, that is damning with with uh, faint praise. So even Cucurella had a good game. I had that in my notes. Even Mudrick had a good game. I was that he, faint I praise or just a, a mockery? A little bit of shade, a little bit of praise rolled into one. The Graham Ruthven special. Uh, but yeah, I thought Mudrick, who's a player that I haven't always enjoyed since his move to Chelsea, he has felt a little blunt at times, a little direct at times, and... And I think that was almost like utilized in a good way in this game. Uh, I thought Raheem Sterling looked good, even when he tried to steal the penalty off of Ollie Palmer. Uh, <laughs> but I loved Enzo Fernandez stepping in and being like, no, Ollie Palmer is taking it. The only thing. I wish Ollie Palmer was taking it. He's still AFC Wimbledon, frankly. <laughs> Cole Palmer. <laughs> Cole Palmer, excuse me. Um, but, but I did think. Uh, that naming issues aside, there were some of the limitations for Chelsea in this one. And I think that's the area where they still have to maybe tighten up where Pochettino hasn't had the full effect of, of being able to see out games, see out the results and sort of kill the game off. There's a moment uh, when Nicholas Jackson comes on when it's still 2-0. 
He's played in, I think it's when they're still up 2-0. Uh, he's played in, he's in a 1v1, and I think overthinks it. And I think if he hits it first time, I think it's in the back of the net, it's 3-0. I have to believe that game is over. But instead, he like feints a shot, then he dribbles, and then he dribbles again, and then he gets the ball taken off of him. And there's, a, there's that moment combined with the Sanchez giveaway that leads to the Declan Rice uh, opening goal for Arsenal. And from that moment on, Chelsea just looked like they had completely lost all confidence. And that can happen when you concede, but I think the veteran teams, the best teams in the world, don't really let it affect them. They're able to ride that. They're able to continue to play their game. And even if they do have that little bit of a wobble, I think they can reestablish some form, some of the aggression, get back into it, maybe get one more, maybe seed the game out, and that this ends up 2-2. Two to two. I think it's exemplified by the post-match interviews where no one from Arsenal was pleased with the first 75 minutes or so and they were all pretty frustrated by the performance but similarly I think every Chelsea player I saw and the manager all seemed pretty frustrated by how this game played out so two teams being very very frustrated by a 2-2 draw felt fitting for the way this played out yeah Graham as much as we can credit Arsenal for the the last 15 minutes or so Chelsea we've given them praise here but they 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 were flattered by the fact Arsenal didn't create too much they were a bit too sloppy not Mm. a great performance on the whole from them I thought it was a really slack performance by Arsenal for, for for the most part. A lot of misplaced passes, especially in the first half. Not a lot of defense, defensive structure, which helped Chelsea get runners forward from deep. That was a real feature of, of, of the first kind of 70 minutes of, of the game. I thought Arsenal really struggled to translate possession into opportunities as well. They had three touches in the Chelsea box in the first half, which is just not good enough for a team of their ability. Um, I know he scores the goal to get them back into it, but I thought Declan Rice was generally... Poor. It's a very good finish, by the way. I know it's a mistake from Robert Sanchez. The finish, though, is is, is excellent. Yeah, yeah. And that is the turning point for Arsenal. And that is the, the positive side for Arsenal, as even in games where they completely fall out of it, like they did here, they are very good at sensing opportunity in matches. And as soon as they get that one goal, you kind of know they're going to get an equaliser. So that is a positive for Arsenal. But I thought Rice was overrun at times. And then when he did have the ball, it didn't feel like there was much intent to his passing, which was in stark contrast to how he was against Man City before the international break. He was firing those passes into Gabriel Martinelli with intent, with pace. There was none of that really in this game. And I I didn't really see Arsenal coming back into this match after it went 2-0. Taylor talks about the Nicholas Jackson chance to make it 3-0. That would have been the game done at that opportunity. But as I say, Arsenal, they have a strong mentality. And even though they, after the match, look at this as, as two points dropped, given the performance on the balance of things, it was probably a point gained. Yeah, I thought, Graham, it was interesting to see Declan Rice in the in his post-match interview as well, very much beating up on himself for his performance, which you don't often see a player do in the manner that he did after this game. Did Robert Sanchez do that yeah, right. in any post-match uh, well, interview? Okay. So who, who was the worst goalkeeper there, Graham? Was it the one who got <laughs> lobbed by the cross or the one who passed it straight to Declan Rice? Wait. Um, uh, I, see, the thing is, Robert Sanchez, I don't think, is as good a goalkeeper as David Raya, and that's maybe why I'm marking him down. But I think Raya was probably worse on the whole, Do, I think. Are we sure, I'm, I'm are we sure that that is like a massive goalkeeper error? So it's the Mudrick goal. It's the second goal for Chelsea in this game. It puts Chelsea up 2-0. And it's Mudrick on the left side. Raheem Sterling is sort of floating on the back side of the box. And it's it's in the 48th minute of this game. Mudrick plays the ball in, and it's a misplaced cross, right? And so Arsenal yeah, are coming forward. Is yeah, it? It's definitely yeah. a cross. It's a thousand Wait, percent can, a cross. Can we, Joe, I want to hear what the rest of your point. Can we? I just want to see where everybody is on that because I I felt like he did it on purpose, and then you no, watch the replay from the one angle, and he never looks at the goal. Yeah, not even the peripheral like glance, even. So I think I end up thinking it was a mishit cross, which maybe. 
brings down my estimations of Mudrick a little bit. So is everyone else saying miss hit cross? I yep. think so. Yes. I, th- I think it was a miss hit cross. But even even setting that aside, right? Well, I'm, I'm not sure if you can or not for, for the point that I'm trying to make. <laughs> Let's just say it's a miss hit cross. Raya is positioning himself to claim a cross, right? The ball is not in an area where you are worried one time out of a thousand about it coming on frame. Mudrik mitz hits the ball. It luckily flies into the, the corner and Chelsea score in that moment. Is Raya not right to play the odds and go to claim the cross that you're he expecting saw, to see a thousand times out of a thousand? He's so aggressive though, Joe, with, yeah. it, with, his, with his positioning. He's too, he's, he's too aggressive with his positioning, I would say. I agree, generally, like if he's a couple steps back and that flies into the top corner, you say, okay, that can happen. He also takes a step forward mm-hmm. when the ball is, is, is hit. So I'm not a goalkeeping expert. I went and found David Priest on, on, on Twitter after this game, a former goalkeeper played for Sunderland. He's a bit of a goalkeeping pundit. And he kind of agreed that maybe the positioning and also that step forward, that's the thing that did it for, 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 for Raya. Yeah, I, I think he just ended up because of that little step forward. I think he looks so stranded. Um, but then when you see it and realize it's it's maybe accidental or not intentional, it changes things. Because the way I saw this, I saw this game on replay. Um, and I think like Mudrik talked about, I saw a headlight of him talking about how he had been instructed to aim for the goal if there was a crossing opportunity, if Raya was in a certain position. And it made me think like, oh, there was intentionality behind this, but watching it again, I I don't think so. So like, I still think Raya could have done better there, but I think he doesn't help his team feel calm because he also has the moment when he gives the ball to uh, Cole Palmer, not Ollie Palmer, Cole Palmer, not Cole Porter. Uh, I keep (laughs) almost calling him different names. Um, And those moments I think do especially if you're already struggling, it just makes the whole team feel like, ah, oh, like no one's playing well. Was no, that the one into Rice, anybody. Taylor? The one into Declan Rice that Cole Palmer picks off? Yeah. that was, that was um, I am generally sympathetic for goalkeepers playing out from the back yeah. and no teams want to do that. But that specific pass was wild. Yeah. It was a wild decision. Declan Rice is completely straight on mm-hmm. and he's like, on the edge of the box, surrounded by three Chelsea players, to play the ball to him at that point was just a ridiculous decision. Yeah, and then, but then like Sanchez also tries to play a ball and ends up passing it to Rice, uh, and maybe when he shouldn't have. That one is interesting because I'm not sure who he is aiming at. There are two Chelsea players there, both of whom are sort of marked or sort of under pressure. He ends up sort of splitting the difference in playing to neither, and it's an excellent finish from Declan Rice. You already said that one, Graham, but the way Sanchez sort of sees it going to the net and then turns around and looks at his teammates, not even in a, like, you should have done more, but more of a, like, what do you want? It's what I have to do sort of way. Like, it does make me think that maybe there's moments when playing out of the back can go wrong. And then Sanchez also has the moment when he comes for the ball and instead just fully bodies Gabriel Jesus. That could have been a penalty as well. Mm -hmm. So I did not feel like either goalkeeper covered themselves in glory in this game. And Sanchez also probably could have done better with the equalizer at the back post. Uh, He's able to get to it, so he's covering his near post, but then doesn't have the hand in the right position to deny the sort of sliding volley uh, from Trossard. So I think Sanchez, I think on the day, the more egregious performance. Does anyone else feel like Mikel Arteta has has maybe created or he's looked for a solution to a problem that didn't really exist with Aaron Ramsdale? So Aaron Ramsdale, we should mention, not special, in the squad, if you will. Yeah. yeah, Aaron Ramsdale not in the squad for this match. His his uh, wife or partner was uh, was giving birth, so it's not like he would have played anyway. But he has very much become second choice at Arsenal in in the last couple of weeks. Um, 
Aaron Ramsdale was fine, right? Did they need to really sign a new goalkeeper? I just think David Raya looks like a bag of nerves at the moment. I think he is a good goalkeeper. He has a high ceiling. I'm not sure he's improved Arsenal in a defensive sense, at least immediately. I do feel like managers need to read maybe slightly fewer books about like management and conflict management and different stuff and just sort of like embrace the like positive team dynamics. It, it seems to me, Graham, to your point, like Arteta wanted to shake things up, wanted to keep people on their toes, maybe didn't love some of the hype that Arsenal had started to get and had been getting in preseason with some of their signings. And to your point, that felt just like making a change to make a change to show everybody that you got to work and you got to play hard, but that can have a destabilizing effect if it doesn't feel justified or continues to not feel justified. And and I don't really want to say like David Raya shouldn't start anymore because I think that just then you're en- you're ending up swapping and swapping and swapping, and I don't think that builds consistency or calm or anything like that. But it does feel as though that decision has had some ripple effects so far for Arsenal. Yeah, obviously none of us can speak to what the dynamics are inside of the Arsenal locker room. I mean, I know we've been trying to get Graham inside there for a few months now um, with with his passable Mikel Arteta drawing impressions. That hasn't happened yet. But what I will say is David Raya was the significantly better goalkeeper last year, at least based off of the numbers. He saved something like five goals more than expected, and Ramsdale was a little bit in the hole in that number. So I think it is a defensible position. It's, it's, it's a thing that I can understand why Mikel Arteta would toy around with. But I, I can also see some downsides, not only to Raya's game, but also to the ripple effects that that may have on a team like Arsenal. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk Merseyside Derby. We're going to go around the rest of the Premier League. We're going to go around the continent. So much more to come, listener. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. 
Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way, because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our weekend review. Slight production note, we realise in the first part of the episode, listener, Joe's audio might not have sounded uh, as good as it should have. There's some gremlins in the works. I believe he fed a gremlin after midnight. That's a, that's a reference that Joe will definitely understand. Uh, right. But Joe, um, just, let, just to let you know, listener, he's being punished by us. He's uh, he's lost his iPad privileges. He's being grounded mm-hmm. for the next couple of weeks. Joe, anything to say for yourself? What I heard is grounded for the next couple of weeks equals vacation. So is this yeah. like a, a smart sabotage move on my part? I'm confused. Are you, wow. you going to spend that vacation in the submarine that you spent the first 10 minutes of this uh, show in? Is that where you're going? <laughs> yes, I am. First of all, I also like Ryan giving the production note after we've realized, but listeners have already known for the past 28 minutes now. Um, yeah. yeah, not my <laughs> finest work. We're coming back stronger on the MLS show tomorrow. We are indeed. And stronger right now, Joe. Let's go, shall we, to the Merseyside Derby, the 243rd edition. I've been counting them. I've got I've got a list. I checked them off. Uh, Liverpool 2, Everton nil in this one. Not as routine as the scoreline might suggest, I would say, in this one. And also not as fun to watch as you might hope. This was an early morning one for us on the East Coast. Uh, most likely with a penalty and a goal on the counter here. Ashley Young changing things up, uh, showing his maturity with a... <laughs> Red card to very much uh, sway the result in this one. Graham, I think that was very much the turning point in this game. Mm. Sean Dyche clearly going for a, a draw in this one until the 10-man situation. And and your prediction that you made to us, uh, not on the show, but in private conversation, which then Taylor, Joe and I proceeded to rip apart on the weekend preview that we did last week, the show that you weren't on, your prediction was actually looking pretty good at around the 70 minute mark, but mm. the rookie error, Ryan, that you made was not accounting for 30 year, uh, 38-year-old <laughs> Ashley Young. Yeah. Uh, the Ashley Young handicap is a big thing in the betting world, so that is what came into force here. <laughs> I want to say... I, I want to say I, I loved this from Ashley Young only because really Darby's like this need those players who just like they lose their heads like you need that in a Darby sometime for them to still have that engaging factor and I I thought Graham will nod along because Scott Brown and Alfredo Morelos like you need yep. a person who might <laughs> lose their mind at any given moment card. because of the atmosphere because of the energy and I fully think that's what happens here uh, because. Early in this game, Everton have a, have a corner. Liverpool win the corner and then attack with seemingly 400 players because that's what they do. Yeah. And Ashley Young covers so much ground uh, to, I think, to get to Sopaslai. Sopaslai then plays it to Luis Diaz. And then Ashley Young gets across, slides in, and blocks that shot that definitely would have been a goal or should have been a goal. Uh, should have done better there. There you go, Joe. Now yeah. take that box. Uh, and, and gets up and he's amped up and he's screaming at his teammates and... In that moment, watching this game, I wrote down, like, Ashley Young, like, up for this game, bringing that energy, bringing that veteran sort of, like, this game matters, this is important, <laughs> I understand what Darby's are. And then he has two more of those moments, and he's off. And, quickly. And they are both bad, they are both yellow card tackles, but it felt, for, it felt to me 
Like he couldn't sort of ratchet down the energy. And it reminded me of when Steven Gerrard gets a red card inside like the first minute playing Manchester United like seasons and seasons ago. What I would say was a few seasons ago, but was probably 10 years ago because time. Uh, but like that sort of moment, I think you could have, even if you're not steeped in the tradition of the game, if you have played long enough to care about rivalries, to care about derbies, I think you can get up for it, maybe overly so. So I loved this from Ashley Young, even if Everton fans definitely did not. I have some sympathy in that there was a period in this match in the first half where Everton were actually having some joy and they were winning some uh, they were winning some corner kicks, like three or four corner kicks in the first half. But the problem was every single time Everton had a corner kick, it would result in this it's rapid crazy. lightning Liverpool counterattack, <laughs> which left left Ashley Young completely either on his own or with another Everton defender to be the safety net, uh, and he failed to be that safety net. But he wasn't really given much help by his Everton teammates. I don't. Okay, so let, let's let's have this conversation for a moment. Is this entirely a Liverpool thing that they're able to do this? Because I watched it and like it's not it's not as though they have a clear positioning for it. Once we win this header, we do this. It feels like once the ball is partially cleared, everybody really aggressively steps to get out of the 18. That seems to be a consistent thing. As soon as that ball is out of the box, so too are the defenders. But then once they have possession, it does just seem like it is everybody go. And like I know that as a hallmark of Liverpool is how you counterpress and how you like uh, attack with numbers and how swiftly you can attack, but it's so lightning and it is so committed. There is no thought of, you know, if we lose this ball, six people are sprinting forward at full speed and have left half of their team behind, and yet they never seem to do so. So for me, it's not that they're doing doing anything special in a, like, rote pattern way it's just aggressive stepping aggressive running and really just fully dedicating themselves to counterattacking. come what may yeah I, I part of my calculation taylor for saying this could end in a draw was that I, my presumption was that their players who've been in south america in the past week or most likely being mm. in egypt they'd have some air miles on them they might not be able to do that from those uh opposition corner kicks but i was i was wrong it's yeah but i understand where you were coming from and 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 i understand that what i'm saying is like oh liverpool counterpress and and counterattack really quickly shocking well like who's seen that ever happen before it's how they are borderline reckless in those counterattacks that stands out to me because so much of what Klopp does seems to be about counterattacking with numbers getting into attacking positions aggressively and quickly but not at the expense of leaving yourself wildly vulnerable to a counterattack and they absolutely could be they're just never caught and I do think it's partially because Everton decided to just leave Ashley Young back for whatever reason but I think it's also when you are 100% committed to a thing and the opposition is maybe 60% committed to tracking back 100 is going to beat 60 it turns out most of the time yeah, in, in math, that is generally uh, a maxim that holds true. Um, Graham, before we leave this game, do you have a boring chat about VAR and uh, refereeing decisions? Uh, I think I'm all VAR down right. for the last few weeks, but we can acknowledge that uh, Kanati was a little bit unfortunate, a little bit fortunate, excuse me, to remain on the pitch. Probably should have seen a second yellow card for a very similar foul to one that James yeah. Tarkovsky was booked for a few moments earlier. So Sean Dyche was unhappy. About that, I think with some justification, uh, I wonder when Everton will come out and say the match should have been replayed because that's a thing that teams do now, apparently. Yeah, I, I clop in the post-match interview, pretty much go, yep, got away with that, subbed him off straight away. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'll take that. The grass or the wind were not to blame today. Very good indeed. Uh, Man City got a 2-1 win over Brighton to keep them top of the table. A record in this one with Akanji getting a 
pretty unnecessary and also reasonably harsh red card at the end of this one, Graham. Um, and uh, Erling Haaland, as I noted in the intro, scoring from outside the box. Oh, a rare one from Haaland. Yep, that doesn't happen very often. Uh, everything else, though, I thought was kind of to form with this match. It was the match that I expected and that both teams play a proactive possession game. The, the first half, though, I thought was pretty one-sided. Something wasn't quite right with Brighton's press, and Deserby admitted this after the match. They were sending players very, very high up in City, as you would expect them to do, um, but it was very easy for City to bypass the press into midfield, and look, you might just say that's because Man City are good, and they're good at that sort of thing. But you looked at the, the Brighton press, it was a little bit fragmented, and poor 38-year-old James Milner. Not a great weekend for 38-year-old uh, former England internationals, because James... Milner was the victim of, of, of that poor press from Brighton. It meant there were so many occasions when Jeremy Doku was just able to run at him one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah. And so it wasn't surprising to see James Milner come off at halftime and Joel Veltman come on in his place. And the other change was that Brighton stopped committed Adingra to the press so often. So Veltman had a little bit more help against Doku. Although that is still a very, very difficult task because Jeremy Doku is really, really good. And I think uh, as, as, as much as Brighton improved in the second half, City deserved to, to win on the whole. I'd like to continue our streak of talking about Julian Alvarez in the most positive of positive lights because I thought he was awesome in this game. I didn't catch the whole match, but in the parts that I did watch, his movement in the attacking third, his movement pinching over from the right side into the middle to sort of float underneath Erling Haaland. This guy's a number nine but he gets used in so many different roles by Pep Guardiola. He can play wider. He can play centrally. He can play underneath. He can do it all. And we saw that at the World Cup last year. We saw that some from Man City last year. We're certainly seeing it this year with him in a bigger role. The first goal is just unbelievable. Graham, you mentioned Doku, and he does so well on that left side to eventually get down the field, cut the ball back. But Alvarez, if you watch him all the way through this sequence, he's like a ghost. Brighton almost never see him, or if they do see him, they certainly don't think he's a threat. They don't react to him to go and step. It's bad defending from Brighton, but it is fantastic movement from Julian Alvarez, and it's a fantastic movement that causes bad defending in the first place because it's so hard to respond to properly. It's a great finish, but even more than the finish, it's the movement and the consistency that we've seen from Julian Alvarez off the ball all season that has me just so impressed with him. Uh, Man United with a 2-1 win at Sheffield United hours <laughs> after the announcement of Sir Bobby Charlton's death, as we noted earlier on. Scott McTominay doing it again. Another goal. And Diego Dello with a banger in this one as well. I don't know if you caught all of this one, Taylor, but did the scoreline belie the <coughs> current shape of Manchester United a little bit? It's all fixed. Everything's great. Yeah, Jim Ratcliffe yeah. did it. Yeah, good. Is, good. That, is that not accurate, Graham? How, how do you feel about your, your child and, uh, and offspring and bloodline and everything else uh, scoring goals again? Well, it wasn't Jim Ratcliffe that fixed it all. It was Scott McTominay oh, and Harry yes, Maguire. Of course. Of course. Of course. Of course. Harry, Harry Maguire, man of the match in, the, in this game. Who saw that coming? <laughs> Very good. Uh, maybe maybe oh slightly helped God. by the fact that Sheffield United are... Uh, the, bla the blades are dull. They lack cutting edge, etc. <laughs> and so on, Graham. Uh, still you, only a single point. I don't know what you guys are talking about. When I see Harry Maguire, Johnny Evans, Scott McTominay, uh, McTominay and Sofiane Amrabat, I think attacking electricity, Fire. baby. <laughs> Fire. <laughs> hey, Scott McTominay is my next top scorer in the Premier League. 
Take, take him out of that list. Low bar, Graham, low bar. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's fairly damning. Uh, Aston Villa with some electrical fire up front, a 4-1 win over West Ham in the Claret and Blue derby. Anyone get their Ira jersey VSPs in this one? Taylor, did you get yours? I, I said there would be a goal from a set piece, so Ira did did ask if yeah. a penalty counts as a set piece. I don't know the answer nope. to that, but I'm inclined to say yes, I win. Uh, Ryan did not get his 18 to nothing <laughs> prediction, which was bold, Ryan. I'll give you credit, but unfortunately... I mean, I was in the right direction it was close right <laughs> yeah i think Graham, what was actually, it was originally eight nil and then graham pointed out that that was possible with the way they yeah. score goals so it got bumped up my my vsp joe was that there'd be one at least one counter-attack goal i watched this game live i was so close on a couple moments there was like some counter press transitions with ollie watkins i i don't think i got the, the counter-attack goal but you know yeah. I, I think i did a decent job of kind of explaining how this game would go i thought aston villa were really really impressive yeah they're only two points off the top of the table, and I know at the time of recording, uh, Postcoglu Spurs can go back to the top, but nonetheless, Villa up to fifth. They've also got a, a favourable run of fixtures coming up now as well, so certainly a, a team to keep an eye on. Ollie Watkins can't stop scoring, neither can Douglas uh, Louise. The new signings have made an impact. They've got so much threat on the breakthrough. Giabi and, and, and Leon Bailey and Watkins, so yeah, they're, they, they're a pretty impressive team to watch at the moment. They are indeed. Uh, Ira, we hope you enjoyed that game. Tomorrow is the anniversary of Unai Emery arriving at Aston Villa as well. They were 16th in the league when he arrived, one point off the relegation zone. Obviously got them European qualification last season. And now, as you mentioned, Graham, flying towards those Champions League places. Only three teams in that in that year have won more Premier League points than Aston Villa, and it's Arsenal, Liverpool and City. So that says a lot for how Emery has made such a profound impact to that club. It does indeed. One club who would be hoping to make a similar profound impact, Newcastle. Uh, they had a 4-0 win over Crystal Palace. Uh, fifth straight home win for them. They're eight games unbeaten in all competitions. An interesting one for Sandro Tonali, this one, uh, Taylor. I don't know if you caught this one. A, a bit of a tearful goodbye from him, it seemed. Uh, it might be his last game in the Premier League this season, given the, uh, the rulings which might be made yeah. against him shortly and I believe got uh, a lot of support from his teammates and from the home crowd so I think at least that tearful send-off was one where he was sort of warmly uh, embraced as opposed to booed and yelled at for that that massive of a signing not being able to play but it does seem like that is going to be the case for him Uh, but also for Newcastle supporters I have to believe that this was about as good as it could have gone given that news uh, because you get the 4-0 win you get uh, Newcastle continuing to just look lethal across the board and I want to say special credit to Jacob Murphy in this game who gets two assists gets a goal it's a little fluky the opener and VAR ends up giving it to him but I thought he looked so exciting so electric as he has this season but the ball for the fourth goal I believe it was it comes from uh, from basically Pope, uh, the Newcastle goalkeeper, collecting the ball. He rolls it out, I think, to Trippier. Trippier plays it down the line for Murphy. Murphy's running onto it. And with his first touch, he takes one touch at full speed and bends one around two defenders perfectly into the path of, of Callum Wilson for the goal. It, it's such a like technically precise, perfect ball from Murphy. Uh, and then he has the other assist, and he has a goal. I just thought it was an exceptional game from him and from Newcastle as a whole, even without Sandro Tonali. Uh, amongst the team, even if he, I think he gets, what, 20 minutes or so there at the end, but I doubt that's what they were looking for uh, when they brought him in. In 
Indeed. Uh, Forest with a 2-2 draw with Luton. Luton getting another point on the board. I think that's five they've got now. They were trailing 2-0 with Luton in the 83rd minute in this one. A good comeback from then. Uh, Forest are now five games without a win. And one other game worth mentioning, Graham. Brentford with a 3-0 win over Burnley with a couple of decent goals in that one too. Yeah, so the second goal from Mboemo is a stunner, so I'd recommend catching that if, if, if listeners haven't seen it already. The third goal from Godos is, is a thunderbolt as well, but to switch the focus to Burnley just for a moment, I have been so disappointed with them yep. this season. I, I found them really, really poor. The most surprising thing is how they kind of look like a team that's only just started to play a possession game rather than a, a team that's had a full season. And I know they were in the championship, but nonetheless, you would expect there'd be some muscle memory in that respect. The number of mistakes that they're making this season, the slow pace that they've moved the ball at as well. And I know they had a difficult fixture list to start the season, but this is the sort of game Brentford are out of form coming into this match. They still don't have Ivan Tony back. They don't have Rico Henry, who's another big absence. So this was one of the matches you'd look at for Burnley and say this is they could get something from this. And they were nowhere near Brentford in this game. Um, I don't know if we're allowed to mention bad things that American eligible players do on, on, hey. on this show, but... Uh, Koleosho has one of the, the misses of the season in, in this match, which certainly didn't help, but even if he stuck that well. in the back of the net... Hit it too it, well, Craig. Yeah, he, hit it too well. He tried to hit it too well, yeah. Uh, but man, the, the <laughs> Burnley are doing not well at the moment, and that next game against Bournemouth this weekend is huge for both teams, actually, because Bournemouth have been dreadful this season. I think at least one of those two teams is going to go down this season, so Burnley needs something from that match. They do indeed. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll go to the USMNT Derby in Milan. They took on Juventus and much more. Back shortly. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs, who would like to remind you when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. You don't want to end up with Ryan, Graham and Joe. Just kidding. Just kidding. Very much just kidding, because I was very fortunate to have the three of them all join the show. And I had existing relationships with all three of them that allowed me to know that they could handle the the the, uh, the amount of work that would be required, that they could be diligent in their tasks and be very effective on mic. And all three of them are. But again, that's because you have the existing relationship. If you don't feel like you have that with potential hires, then LinkedIn is going to make it very, very easy, and they're going to make it feel like you are connected to that person. They have a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because it gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. But when you are setting the requirements and making it very specific as to what you're looking for, you can very quickly narrow it down to find the right candidate for that position. Hiring is easy when you have that many candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring, and you can too. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash TSS. That's linkedin.com slash TSS to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Thank you very much to LinkedIn for sponsoring today's episode. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible 
to have it both ways. Mack Welder makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our weekend review. We head now to Italy, where the headline game was Juventus's 1-0 win at AC Milan, the aforementioned USMNT derby. All four US players starting this one. Pulisic uh, lasting the first half in this one. Uh, the first Juventus win over Milan since 2021, said the CBS broadcaster. Huge streak there to highlight, I would say. Uh, Manuel Locatelli with the goal. Uh, Krunich deflecting the shot in in this one. Joe, of all the series Serie matches I've watched this year so far, this was one of them. Um, yes. Allegri <laughs> yes, was. Discuss. It, it was. So Taylor put down in our document uh, something about this game being dull from a Juventus perspective, and my response to that is death, taxes, etc. Like, we know what we get from a Max Allegri Juventus team at this point. They can be effective, and they didn't allow many high-quality chances from Milan in this game, which is... <laughs> you know, at least half the battle, right, in terms of how you shut down a team like Milan that we all agree had a really strong transfer window. But, I mean, th- this was not a great game if you set aside the USMNT perspective, which was a fun angle on this, I would say. Tim Weah getting the assist. Ryan, looking forward to reading about how he actually engineered that goal in your newsletter. Um, so I- I'm, I'm eagerly awaiting that to happen before too long. It is um, maybe the assist that shows why assist is a stupid stat. Go watch it. You'll understand why. <laughs> this is not a great game from either side. Pulisic has to come off because of the red card that happens early, uh, excuse me, late in the second half. A textbook red card if we're playing American football. Um, so he comes off in this first half and Milan don't have a ton of other joy. So I don't think we learned, frankly, a whole lot about this game. Milan, if they have 11 players all the way through, probably mm. at least get a point out of this game. They don't. Juventus plays Juventus ball and they grab, they, they, they grab three points on the road. I think you could pretty much tell what was going to happen by the time that uh, that red card happens in the first half. With that said, though, Joe, like I, I understand everything you're you're saying about Allegri, but the idea that they go up a man inside the first half, and, and it feels like they come up for the second half with more lateral passing as the plan for how to <laughs> score goals. That that shot being their first on target, and it takes a massive deflection along the way is a pretty interesting stat to me. I will say, you're right, uh, Wea gets the assist, and it's not as though he maybe does a ton in that one, though he does drift all the way across the pitch to get on the ball and then plays it across. But I would say for the red card, uh, he does a good amount. That He basically dribbles inside, does a nice little turn, plays that ball forward, gets fouled as he's playing it, but it's that ball that leads to the red card incident, which was a real, 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 real dumb red card incident for uh, for T.L. But... 
The Allegri thing I have to go back to for a moment because if people watched this or didn't watch it, uh, there's the moment near the end when Allegri gets his yellow card and just is losing his mind. Takes off his jacket, takes off his tie, I believe, is kicking stuff, is screaming. And because he gets a yellow, I assumed it was yelling at the referee, so I went back and watched it a few times. I'm pretty sure it's just Adrian Rabio, and it's Adrian Rabio dribbling into the corner as the game is is ending, uh, holds it up, and then he, I think, kicks it off Calabria, and it goes out for a Juve throw. So you would assume, oh, he's killed some time, he's gotten them a throw, they're going to waste more minutes, that's good. And you see him sort of do that and look up and then be like, like sorry, like, calm, calm down, please. <laughs> and it's, I think Allegri is just directly yelling at him. In the post-match, Allegri talked about how we must control the game more we must have more possession we must know how to kill the game off and how to slow things down and not present opportunities for Milan and that felt a little bit much to me with the way this game had gone and with Juve leading I I feel like Rabio was just trying to alleviate pressure there I'm not one to defend Adrian Rabio generally speaking but that felt over the top for a manager to go that nuts at a player because he went on a dribble and killed time well, generally, I think Adrian Rabio's mum is the only one that defends him. Fair. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I just going mad. My players are being creative. Arr! It, 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 it really it was down. that, man. It was yeah. so strange. It was so strange. <laughs> just be like, there will be no dribbles. <laughs> Very strange. Although maybe one of the highlights of the game. Apparently, the quarter of giving him plenty of abuse. Uh, his uh, relationship with Milan, of course, uh, mm. extends prior to his Juventus engagement. Uh, Graham? I turn 40 in a few weeks. It gives me hope that there was a 40-year-old on the field in this game as well. Antonio Morante in goal for Milan, who did a pretty decent job. Yeah, uh, Oli Giroud must have been gutted that he didn't get the nod to start in in, in goal for for, for this game. Uh, Yeah, I have limited thoughts on this match because I have had better times watching other football matches than this one. I will say James Horncastle tweeted that this was the third Rugby World Cup semi-final, Hmm. which, look, I'm not a rugby fan at all, but I know enough to know that's an insult. He's saying that this was a bad match Hmm. to watch. I did like, I must say, I did like the uh, USMNT on USMNT action at times, like when Eunice Musa sort of barged Timothy Weah off the pitch in the first half and then kind of like has a look back where I'm, I'm, I actually have uh, trouble reading what he was saying is I'm not sure if he's kind of like looking back to say, yeah, that's right. Like I'm not your teammate in this game. Or if he's looking back being like, are you okay, man? Are you okay? That one. You think it's that? I think it's that. Cause he, he checks three times after it happens. And I think the first time is like, Oh, that was Tim. I hope he's okay. And then checks back again to be like, are are you okay, man? I think the third time is another, like "We're, we're cool. Right? Like, you know, I didn't mean anything by that, but also, Musa does body Tim Weah. That did happen. Uh, Musa had yeah. himself an interesting game as well. He has some good plays, some good runs, some good control, uh, but then also has a few very errant passes uh, on occasion. I think you could see some of his inexperience on display. He also has two moments when the ball goes out of bounds, and it is clearly a Juve throw, and he does that, picks the ball up to take the throw. Oh, it's not our throw? Are you sure it's not our throw? Wait, hold on. Let me hold the ball and talk to the referee for a second about how it might be our throw. Oh, it's not? Okay. And then he throws it away again, and it kills a good 15 seconds and lets all of the Milan players get back into their necessary defensive shape. Mm. So in that moment, I was like, oh, he's picking up some veteran things here. He's picking up some dark arts. I like it. Eunice Moose is becoming a crafty professional. Let's keep more of that. Well done, Tim. I also killing loved 15 it. seconds. And uh, this, this game killing 90 minutes of my Sunday, also. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Graham. I, 
I also love the Locatelli celebration. That was an, that was another thing that I like because you get some players who will do this kind of muted celebration when they score yeah. against their former club, but not Locatelli. He went running around the pitch and looked to be on the brink of, of, of tears. And he's faced quite a bit of criticism these past couple of seasons. So this was a big moment for him. And he scored a winner for Milan against Juventus seven years ago. So things sort of coming full circle for him. Yeah, lovely deflected winner. Uh, Into Milan, top of the table, by the way, on 22 points. Milan at 21, Juve 20, so very tight at the top of Serie A at the moment. Inter with a 3-0 win at Torino to go top of the table here. Uh, Elsewhere in Serie A, a couple of things I wanted to note. Roma with a 1-0 win over Monza, a very much uh, much-needed win for Roma this was. El Shirawi scoring, unlike against England a few days prior. (laughs) Uh, Mourinho doing some very... If if Allegri's behaviour was uh, shocking, Mourinho doing the crybaby gesture to the Monza bench. And getting Incredible. sent off in the 90-something minute of this game. Uh, apparently, he accosted the ref again in the parking lot and the ref got in trouble at the airport. So not great behaviour from Jose Mourinho. From How else would you celebrate a big win? <laughs> exactly, yeah. It's, uh, and the thing is, Graham, the Roma fans will love every second of that. <laughs> they will love it and he'll, he'll do it more and more. He's out for the next match, which is against Inter Milan, who also love Jose Mourinho. So it's a shame for uh, for him there. The goal of the weekend I want you all to check out, by the way, came in Bologna 2, Fris, uh, Fresnoni uh, 1. Lorenzo Di Silvestre scored from outside the box with a header. A diving header from outside the box. Please look this one up. Lorenzo Di Silvestre for Bologna in this one. Um, apparently the last goal from outside the box with a header was Cattuso in 2011. Fun fact for you there. Uh, let's go to La Liga, where Barcelona had a 1-0 win over Athletic Club. Mark Gui. Gui, Graham? Gui? Gui? Who knows? Yeah, <laughs> This is the first time I've ever seen him. Let's give Ryan <laughs> 10 more shots at it, though. Ryan, go uh, ahead. More, more, more attempts? 17-year-old guy scored the goal <laughs> for uh, Barcelona. They got another one. Another Lamazia uh, plant has grown out of the Lamazia pot. Bad analogy. Uh, 33 <laughs> seconds into his uh, his appearance here, Graham. Uh, he scored quicker, his first league goal, quicker for Barcelona than any other player in the club's history. Bravo. Who's next? Another 15 or 16-year-old coming through after him? Surely. I'm sure there'll be another. another. But maybe this is the best ever start to a senior career mm. like his first involvement as a Barcelona player a minute after he comes on I think it's his third touch that is the the finish into yep. the back of the net and his first and second touch is to set himself up for the shot it's not like he had another involvement before then and um, so yeah quite the start for, for for him his family were in tears in the stand and that's a, a a nice moment and I do like that Xavi is so quick to look to the youth academy you also have Fermin Lopez in this match who looks very talented too we haven't really spoken about him this season but he looks like a good prospect and um, Barcelona currently struggling with a number of injuries, so Lewandowski is is, is missing for, for this match. I think that has a big Im- impact. Uh, they lack that focal point when he's not involved, and uh, Franco de Jong is missing, and Pedri is missing, and Rafinha, and Koundé, and Sergi Roberto, so it feels a bit like Xavi is, is building the airplane while flying it, but also bits keep falling off all the time, <laughs> and that is a bit of a worry with the first Clasico of the season coming this weekend. Just one point between Barcelona and Real Madrid, and I think the outcome of that match is going to have a big bearing on the tone of the rest of the title oh, race. Wow. A couple more kids have got to grow up in the next week then, Graham, it sounds like, before <laughs> they can uh, get into the team next week. Uh, Sevilla uh, with a 1-1 draw with the aforementioned Real Madrid, the Sergio Ramos derby, if you will. A late header from uh, Danny Carvajal, earning Real Madrid the point in this one. Uh, what do we make of this one, Graham? I, I thought Jude Bellingham had a sort of a cheeky stamp on uh, Rakitic late on, did he not? 
Oh, I missed that. I'm not saying yeah. it didn't happen, but uh, I, I, I must have missed that. Um, but yeah, two points dropped as far as Real Madrid are concerned, just one week before the Classical. As I said, it's coming up this weekend. Now just a one-point lead over Barcelona going into that match. I thought in terms of this match uh, uh, at the Ramon sanchez Pichuan, both teams lacked a bit of cut- cutting edge in front of goal. Kepa made a couple big saves, but then for the Sevilla goal, I know it comes off Alaba and it's quite close range, but... I- I don't know. I still expect an elite level goalkeeper to save it. I think Courtois would have saved the, the, that one, put it that way. Um, Kepa did stop Sergio Ramos from heading a, a winner late on, though, with a, a flying save 10 minutes from the end. And that was the main storyline here, was Ramos against his former club. And he was in prime poop house mode for this game. There was a moment, I love this moment, I included it in the in, in the newsletter today. There was a moment where he squared up to Antonio Rudiger, and Rudiger's not very happy with him, and they're squaring up. And then he, like, Ramos puts his fingers in Rudiger's mouth to give him a smile, like the Joker that is literally what the Joker does so I know that Sergio Ramos is the ultimate uh, villain but he's a bit of a pantomime villain I'll miss him when he's gone for great moments like that yeah good stuff indeed Uh, Atletico Madrid with a 3-0 win over Celta Antoine Griezmann with a hat-trick there the first player to get a hat-trick for Atleti since Antoine Griezmann in February 2018 A uh, fun fact for you there. In the Bundesliga, Bayern Munich with a 3-1 win over Mainz. Harry Kane with his ninth goal of the season. Uh, Taylor Rockwell's Leverkusen top of the league. A 2-1 Woo! win over Wolfsburg. Yay, indeed. Dortmund with a 1-0 win over Werder Bremen. With Julian Brandt sending them top for a little while on Friday night. Oh boy, Eredivisie time. Uh, Utrecht 4, Ajax 3. The game suspended twice for crowd disorder here. Missiles thrown on the field from Ajax fans a couple of times. Ajax Taylor now 17th in the Eredivisie, the lowest position ever for the club wow. in their entire history. They are eight there's games. only 18 teams, for context. There's yep. only 18 yep. teams in the Eredivisie. <laughs> yeah, they are in very much the relegation zone. Eight games in all competitions without a win. Uh, the worst run of results since 1954. So uh, when we left off in mm-hmm. our uh, Big thing discussion. We thought maybe there's going to be an upturn here. Things are going to turn around, but yeah. not so much. Uh, yeah, they haven't won since August. All my other stats you have gone through. So I will just say one of the conversations we had around the, or during that big thing and and was a conversation point at the time was that this is still an IX team with plenty of talent and they spent money and some of it was maybe ill advised and some of it maybe benefited uh, Sven Mislintat, but overall it's still IX and they still have. The capability to, at the very least, finish in the top eight or something like that. And they have not turned it around at all. And I saw some speculation amongst the Ajax fans that this is a sort of lowest of the low point, certainly from a points, from a standings standpoint, but also that for a lot of these players who have only had success or when you go to Ajax, there is an assumption that we will be in and around the title race, in and around the top two or three. And to have it go this poorly, this quickly, it feels... It sounds like like some players are, are quitting and just not really putting forth the effort, aren't really doing enough to get out of it. And so I think you will continue to see bigger names not get minutes and train by themselves and younger players coming through get opportunities. It also still seems like there is not much direction in the way they want to play or the way they want to attack. And so it's a lot of improvisation, which can be okay, but when you're supposed to be playing a very specific system, as Ajax tend to do, it just means that everything slows down because you have to wait for the one player to do a thing, and once he's doing that, then you go here, but then once you go there, the other person has to wait for you, and it just slows everything down, and teams are able to press them really effectively. It doesn't seem like it's going to turn around anytime soon. I don't think they end up relegated, but I will say 
the graphic I looked at right before we started recording was their pass map from this game. And Joe, it was straight up the horseshoe of doom. It was it was yeah. so so depressing uh, to look at when you think of how Ajax want to play, how they've played historically. It is the best worst representation of just how far this club has fallen thus far this season. I, I did enjoy Maurice Stein, who is the the manager, coming out after the game and saying. Essentially, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but essentially the message was, I know the reality is bad, but if you could just see what's in my head, you would know things are going to oh, be Oh, that's how we okay. evaluate. Yeah, uh. I'm, not sh- I'm, not sure that's, <laughs> I'm not sure that's going to work, Maurice Stein. But not to worry, they've got Brighton in the Europa League this week and then PSV Eindhoven next weekend. So I'm sure things are going to improve. No, we're not convinced there? I- I wish you could use that excuse more often. Like, you just go into a meeting unprepared. Like, guys, up here, this meeting went great. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, these lottery numbers, they're not the ones on the ticket, but the ones in my head, they won. So all the money, please. Thank you very much. Um, MLS decision day, Joe. Uh, We surely must talk about Charlotte FC. Everyone knows deserving of a a place in the playoffs. Uh, Scrape through. Uh, with a win over into Miami. I was present. I like that you couldn't even commit yourself to the joke. (laughs) (laughs) That's how little you actually believed it. Can I get away with that one? Um, But Charlotte SD did get away with that one, Joe. And I got to see into Miami play. I got to see Messi walk around and hold his his legs while bent over double for 20 minutes. And for more of that, I think we might be talking about it on the Patreon later today. So you know where Mm. to go for that highly entertaining bonus content. I thought Charlotte actually played fairly well in this game against Miami. Yeah. They win 1-0 at home. They they needed a win to have a chance here, and they got it. And so credit to them for that absolutely fair play. They needed help from multiple teams as well on decision day, and they got that too. So everything's sort of coming up roses for Charlotte. Miami, I thought, were very, very poor in this game. And Ryan, I'm curious about your impressions. Maybe we'll get those on the Patreon later on. I, I did not think they were sharp at all. I am I'm genuinely curious because I've sort of been on this crusade against like the, this expanded playoff format, and I know MLS has led a, t- a lot of teams into the playoffs in the past, and that's not totally uncommon. Just these these teams, a lot of these teams that have snuck in towards the bottom don't feel particularly inspiring to me. And Charlotte, I'll admit, even though I like watching them, I don't think they're a very good team. Ryan, how do you feel as a Charlotte FC fan to see this team make the playoffs as that, that sort of bottom seed they have to get through the playing game to actually advance to the first round? Yes. Anything else, Joe? <laughs> No, I can do the rest of the decision day, though. We'll go through this in more detail on tomorrow's show, uh, as, as far as I'm aware, at least. The Red Bulls sneak in as the eighth seed in the playoffs in the Eastern Conference. That extends their playoff streak to 14 consecutive years. It's hard to miss the playoffs as MLS keeps letting more and more teams into the playoffs. That's the hack. I think we found it, ladies and gentlemen. John Tolkien wins this game for the New York yes. Red Bulls. Both of My the hero. Red Bulls' primary penalty kick takers were off the field. By the time it's it's uh, it's time for the Red Bulls to have this penalty kick late in the match against Nashville, away from home, and who steps up to take it but the young left back, John Tolkien. I, I'll be honest, I don't know how high Tolkien's ceiling is as a player. I think he's a very good player. I don't know that he's a Champions League left back, but man, he's somebody I want on my team. And Graham, I know you love John Tolkien. Just the, the swagger to go up and as, not, not the youngest player on this team, I think 21 years old now, John Tolkien's played enough soccer games to be confident about taking a penalty kick. But to, to be the guy who says, no, I'm going to take this and I'm going to go up. I want to be in the big moments and score. It's a bunch of intangible stuff, but I've talked to John Tolkien before, Graham, and he comes off really, really well. Yeah, I love John Tolkien. That, he's the reason I'm growing this blonde mullet at the moment in, in, in tribute to, to, to John Tolkien. I know he doesn't have the mullet any anymore. Yeah, John Tolkien used to have a... a 
Yeah, yeah. I'm going through the cycle of haircuts that John Tolkien has had, like maybe 18 months uh, behind. There's a lag of 18 months. He doesn't have the mullet anymore, but in spirit, he still has the the mullet. I love the celebration from this penalty as well, where there's like one. There seems to be one Red Bull fan in Nashville, and John Tolkien has managed to pick him out in the crowd and is like hugging him and and stuff. I don't know whether he knew that person, but yeah, I'm a big fan of John Tolkien. As you should be. I think we all should be. I enjoy John Tolkien quite a bit. And then the Western Conference very quickly. FC Dallas, Sporting Kansas City, and San Jose lock up the the three spots that were up for grabs coming into Decision Day. So credit to those clubs. I've got a special eye on SKC, who are one of the hottest teams in the league right now. They were awful to start the year. They were injured left and right. Now they're healthy, and they're playing some good soccer. I'm excited to see what they can bring in the playoffs. So they, they are one of the teams that I think is actually worthy of making the postseason, at least if we cut out that first third of the year. But I've got my eyes on them heading into the playoffs, which start on Wednesday, folks. Got the playing games, and then the first round starts after that. We do indeed. All eyes on New Jersey for Charlotte's visit. Uh, yeah, cool, great. Are you going? To New, to New Jersey for one day? Yeah. No. Well, yeah. <laughs> Is that because they don't have Bojangles at that stadium? They don't. There's much more here. Yeah, so uh, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll await uh, the victorious return of Charlotte FC. Joe, just to go back to uh, some chat about Eastern Conference, can I ask you about Duncan Maguire? Because I know Matt Doyle has shares in Duncan Maguire or something, or maybe (laughs) Maguire is his nephew, but he is super hyped about him, called him the best American youngster out of, what did he call him against? The best American youngster out of college soccer since Brian McBride, Um, which I don't really have the knowledge base to know whether that that is wild or not. But having seen him on decision day against Toronto FC and seen him this season, I really like what I, what I see. The first goal against Toronto on Saturday, wow. He flicks over the head of Michael Bradley, retires him right there and, and then, and then lashes home and outside of the boot, finish from outside the box. 13 goals this season. He's 22 years old, so maybe not that young in the grand scheme of things, but it seems to me like he's an incredible, incredible finisher. So, Joe, talk to me. Duncan Maguire, when does he play for Man City? I, I like Duncan Maguire. I don't think he ever plays for Manchester City. I got to watch him in person a couple of times Last week and the week before for the U23s when they were here, the US U23s out in Phoenix. And I I like Duncan McGuire a lot. He's not the most physically imposing player, but he is strong. I think he's sharp with with some of his movement in behind the line. He scored 13 goals, Graham, you said it, in his first season of pro soccer. I think he's a talented young player. I am withholding judgment on him until next season, basically is what I've decided. He's overperforming his expected goals by a ton. Like his overperformance is basically why... Orlando City are sitting in second in the Eastern Conference. They're the second best team in MLS based on points this year. But Orlando are are a good team. I don't think they're a great team. But with Duncan McGuire playing like he is, they are a great team. So he's soaring right now as a rookie. I don't know if it's sustainable. So the the question that I'm wondering is, does he cool off on the finishing side? And, and, you know, you can't play against Michael Bradley every game. And so that that does mean sort of some of those numbers are going to be inflated. But... Does he cool off on the the, the finishing side or does his improvement and his understanding of the game at the professional level increase to the point where, you know, there isn't much of a drop off and he actually just gets sustainably better next season? I think it's likely to be something in the middle where Maguire drops a little bit, but his fundamentals get a bit better and he's, he's sort of less flashy, but still effective. But I don't share Doyle's obsession, I guess is, is maybe how I'd call it. Uh, but I, I do think he's a good young player that could have a bright future at this level. Good stuff. A quick look at the USL playoffs, if you will, Joseph. Uh, all eyes, of course, next week in the next round of the playoffs on Orange County SC. My boys, who've they got? 
Do you know who? Who could say? Who, who could say, Ryan? Phoenix Rising mm-hmm. getting the win in their opening round game to then go on take on Orange County in the second round of the playoffs. This Ooh. first weekend was crazy, and we've got you know way, way, way more detailed coverage over on Backheel. But the top two seeds in the Eastern Conference go down. So that's the Pittsburgh Riverhounds. They lose to Detroit, which is a, a massive upset. Pittsburgh was the best team in the regular season. And then Tampa Bay dropped to Birmingham in the first round as well over in the Eastern Conference. Huge results in Charleston, now the highest-seeded team. They're a fun team to watch. If you're going to go catch a USL game, watch Phoenix Rising. If you're not going to watch Phoenix Rising, go watch Charleston Battery because they have young teenage U.S.-Mexico dual national Fidel Barajas, who's going to be at the U-17 World Cup with Mexico. He's going to be in Europe, Europe sooner rather than later. This kid's legit, and he's a lot of fun to watch. He scored a goal for Charleston in their decimation of Indy 11. And then in the Western Conference, it was the last playoff game of the weekend. I got to watch a little bit of it, even though I was mostly off the grid yesterday. Phoenix win 4-3 in extra time at San Diego, the last ever game for the San Diego Loyal, which is a sad thing. The fans turned up for that match. It's difficult to see a club just sort of fold out of nowhere. The Phoenix Rising players won't care, though, because they got the win. They're going to advance. Honestly, guys, the USL playoffs are so parody-driven. Anybody could win this thing. So why not Phoenix Rising, I ask? Why not, mm. guys? I'll tell you why not, Joe. Orange County. Yes. Why? That's why. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'm not scared. I'm not scared <laughs> At what point it. do we mention that Ryan works for Orange County SC? With the- I've got to do... I just, I know, uh, no, Graham. I just like them. I just like them. <laughs> okay, sure. Yeah. Right. Ryan Ryan found his USL team, and he's, he's sticking with them for, through a thick and thin. One more thing from me on this episode, the NWSL playoffs... The first round happened over the weekend. We had Oil Rain and Angel City on Friday, and then North Carolina Courage taking on Gotham at home. So that game was in North Carolina on Sunday. Oil Rain get the win on Friday. They top Angel City 1-0. Not a particularly exciting game. Rose Lavelle comes off the bench. That's fun. She's back. Don't know if she'll be 90 minutes fit by the next round, but there's an international break between now and then. We love international breaks in the middle of the postseason schedule in both MLS and the uh, NWSL. Great fun for everybody. But Oil Rain advance, I think they were maybe the slightly better team in that game. It wasn't a great game overall, I'll be honest. And then Gotham get the 2-0 win over a Caroline-less North Carolina Courage team. The Courage couldn't really score goals all season, or at least couldn't create sustainable chances all season. And that same theme applied at home, certainly without their best player. Gotham, I think, was the better team in this matchup, and I'm excited to see Gotham up against Portland on Sunday, November 5th in the semifinals, and San Diego Wave, who had the first round by, taking on OL Reign on that same day. Amazing stuff. Thank you very much, Joseph. A uh, quick uh, couple notes on other business from me. Wayne Rooney had his first game as Birmingham boss over the weekend, a 1-0 defeat to Middlesbrough. Uh, apparently, he wanted to be a lawyer before the DC United job came up. That's come up in um, the... Colleen Rooney Netflix oh, thing. Oh, I read that, yeah. and I didn't believe it when I read it, and yeah. I still don't believe it when you're mentioning it now, Ryan Bailey. There you go. Stranger things have happened, I suppose. Or have they? I don't no, know. they haven't. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, last thing for me, Cristiano Ronaldo scored a very good free kick for his Saudi team against another Saudi team, if you want to watch that as well. Uh, Al Nasser and Demac, if you are taking notes there. But for now, we have Weekend Reviewed. Taylor Rockwell, a pleasure as always joining us. Thank you. Pleasure is mine, my friend. Graham Rutherford, thank you very much, sir. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. And Joe Lowry, thank you for switching your mic on for at least 60% of this podcast. (laughs) Yeah, the sub was comfy, um, but I decided land was a bit safer for me, so you're welcome. There you go. Submarines getting a bad rap in the last few months as we are. No, listener, thank you very much for joining us on this one. We'll be back on the feed very shortly, but for now, bye! (laughs) 